Alright, so uh, this is Bedford from Naming It, and um, I just wanted to uh, introduce you to our, our Real Talk one-on-one uh, guest for today. It's Dr. Nakisha Hammond. Uh, she's a child psychologist. She's an author. She's a speaker. Um, she's a leader, And uh, but I'll, I'll let her introduce herself and tell you more because I'm sure she can do that better than me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, I, as you mentioned, I'm a psychologist, a clinical psychologist with a specialty in children and adolescents. And I'm also the television show host of Parenting Explained with Dr. Hammond. And I speak and I just recently wrote a book, uh, ADHD Explained, What Every Parent Needs to Know. And I also do enjoy um, advocating for the field of psychology. And this year, I'm the immediate past president of the Florida Psychological Association. Wow. So you uh, you have a whole lot of stuff on your plate right now. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. So can you tell us a little bit more about like the work that you do and, and like all the, the areas that are uh, maybe the most uh, pressing at this time for you? Yeah. Um, gosh. So there's a lot. Uh, I mean, as many people obviously have seen in the news, any time that something happens that is even remotely uh, related to mental health, then as I mean, being a board member and on the executive committee of Florida Psychological Association and also working to advocate on the federal level with the American Psychological Association, it's been a really, really, really busy year. Um, and I do, I, I appreciate the, the the ability to definitely advocate for the field, but at the same time, it's distressing and it's been very stressful. I've heard it from the teams that I work with. I hear it in the media, I do a lot of media consultation. So, I, I mean, it's been a really, really, really pressing year with everything happening with mental health and with human rights, frankly, uh, that's been happening in the media. So it's been a very busy year. Um, additionally, I am on the board of the Ryan Neese Foundation. And basically in that organization, what we do is we really teach, it's really cool. We have a really cool student service program. So we teach teens how to be leaders, how to give back. We stress giving back to the community. We take them on uh, leadership, basically service trips each year. We teach them each month about leadership and giving back. So I've been with that organization for a while, and um, I just really appreciate overall the ability to give back to the community and to make sure that we're making a difference. And again, as I mentioned earlier, just to advocate for for everything that's going on at this time so it sounds like you um so you're you're doing a lot of advocacy from a lot of different angles um uh i remember we met uh at a conference in the apa conference american psychological association uh that was there to train uh you know uh leaders um who are early career and um from to, to kind of take on roles as like leaders in their states. And it sounds like, you know, you've, you've definitely stepped up to do that. You're the president of, uh, of your local psych association. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm wondering kind of one of the things that we talk about for naming it is like how all of the things that we do intersect with social justice. Um, yeah. and so you talked a little bit about that, but I'm wondering like, just like, how do you look at what you do and the different things that you do? How do they intersect with social justice and like, um, and what does that even mean? for you yeah so it means a lot of different things one is i i mean obviously as a psychologist um i believe in mental health treatment and we know there's a huge stigma with mental health in particular in african-american communities and in hispanic communities and uh i mean many 
many other communities, frankly, and especially with children as well. There's a huge stigma. So what that means to me is that we all, not just psychologists, but we all have a role to really advocate and also educate. And people, I mean, it's really easy. (laughs) I know it seems difficult to educate the masses, but we have this thing called social media now. So really and truly sharing and retweeting and reposting or whatever platform, if it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or whatever people are on, really taking the time to share positive things, to share information. I know that there's a lot of cyberbullying, unfortunately, um, that's happening and just really hurtful and horrendous, frankly, comments that people are making online about political views and all these sorts of things. But if we really just sort of focused more on the positive things and the resources and the interventions and things like that, I think that's where, you know, each and every one of us, not just, again, as a psychologist, but each and every one of us have an opportunity to play that role um, with social justice. And and really, uh, honestly, last week, I will admit, I almost lost my mind a little bit with everything that was going on with the kids and being separated from their parents. But again, I mean, I was on YouTube, I was doing media interviews, and we were working with Florida Psychological Association, and I mean, APA, the American Psychological Association made a statement. All of these organizations were really just getting together. It was kind of cool to see, and just like bringing forces together to be like, this is not right. You are damaging children. Here's what you need to do instead, and just putting that information out there. I mean, it was a hashtag, a huge trending hashtag on Twitter and many other places. So again, I think our role is to educate and to advocate. And, you know, that's what I try to do as well and teach others how to do it as well. too. And, you know, we talked on our, on the last episode episode of naming it. Um, we talked about the, the atrocity that's happening with the children who are being taken from uh, their parents at the borders and um, how they are being housed and separated and no one's being given access. Um, I, one of the things that we talked about was that, like you said, APA made this statement, and um, the thing that like really stood out for me is that in the past APA hasn't done that. You know, it hasn't like stepped to the fore, it hasn't gotten to the breach and like put itself on the line. And I and I, I feel like people like you who are in leadership are make the difference. And I'm wondering if there were if you could like let us into any of the kind of internal conversations you might have you know I mean you don't have to tell nobody's business but you know just like how how it was to like be the president of like Florida Psychological Association and trying to support this um, more social justice oriented stance yeah and and what I will say so technically uh, by our roles I I can't speak on behalf of the organization but as past president um, but what I can say though which is you know, obviously public public information, which is on our website, is that we have had discussions, obviously, and we have supported APA and their stance specifically with children and the issue with them being taken away from their parents at the border. And um, we've also supported, in, the, in years past, like APA stance, and we have, as an organization, become more um, socially justice aware, if you will, and have been making more statements when it relates to something in Florida. Um, with, you know, the Parkland uh, school shooting and things like that, we've been definitely more vocal. And and I agree with you. I think APA definitely has been over the last few years more vocal, which I definitely appreciate. And I think that the majority of the, the members, I'm a member too, but the majority of the members appreciate that as well. Um, because I really think we have an obligation. And we, 
we're who the the public looks to sometimes like, hey, American Psychological Association, you have this huge body of research, you have information. These are not just opinions, right? This is like years and years and decades of research to say, hey, this is harmful to a child. So here's the leading research in psychology with child um, well-being. Here it is, right? So we have an obligation to put that information forward. And I, I, I appreciate how it's been done. I think it's been and not just American Psychological Association, but various other organizations, I think that it's been very tactful. I think there's a ton of research, as I mentioned. It's very scientifically based, um, the, you know, to, to really step forward. But, but again, you know, Florida Psychological Association and American Psychological Association and all the other organizations, I'm just really grateful the direction that we're headed in. Like you said, to just be more forward and to speak out more and to try to help with these issues. I mean, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, as you talk about um, kind of the, the, the way that the organizations have kind of moved forward and they've began to give better messaging and, and put things out, you mentioned that you have that, that you host your own television show, um, Parenting Explained, um, and that you've been on YouTube and the radio. I mean, you're, you're, you're obviously doing uh, podcast pieces and whatnot. Um, one of the things that I really admire about you is that um, you are very successful in being a public psychologist who's able to kind of get the message out to the to, to folks and you're you've been very um you've done a really really good job of uh, kind of making making yourself yourself accessible even to the point and i know we've joked about this in in like private but i i love the fact that you've taken on the moniker of america's psychologist like the the fact that you would like own that you just grab that up i was like ah why'd she get that i wanted that you know and it's just i, I love that so could you talk about that some yeah yeah and you know that was one of my things even well last year when i was president so this year i'm immediate past president um and then last year I was president of FPA and that was one of the things that I was really vocal about and it's something that means a lot to me is public education because the fact of the matter is it is there's so much um like misinformation out there there's so many myths about mental health there's so much that people don't know and that that hurts me so much because Especially with children, that's my specialty area. I mean, pe- like people have no idea about ADHD or depression or anxiety. There's still some people that are like, really? Like children can have mental health issues? I mean, and, and not like to make fun, but just to be like, yes, they can. Like, you know, it's like, here's the information. Like some people have never been told. There's so many terms. I mean, some people have never been told, like, there's different types of ADHD. And and did you know that you can go to the school and the school can help you in some cases? And there's different modifications that can happen. I mean, even those pieces of information that I think as psychologists is, like, you know, common knowledge to us, it's not common knowledge to a lot of people. Um, So that's why I really, I think for the rest of my life, um, I I want to really dedicate, and and even within organizations, like, dedicate ourselves to public education and to to letting people understand you know like what is it about mental health it's not that scary to get treatment there is a stigma but you still need to get treatment you know what I mean like here's what the signs are here's what the symptoms are to know if these things are happening because we can really help people to have a better quality of life if people just understand the facts yeah yeah um yeah I think that that's like the the challenge of working with um marginalized communities and yeah. um 
trying to help folks get to the point where they can utilize services and 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 like get the help that from a from a real perspective has been denied to them not only based on discriminatory policies but because you have negative interactions historically you know a lot of those expectations a lot of the problems um they're they're real you know it's like one of the things i talk to my students about is like oh you know you can't go out there and, and get um you know, hurt feelings about people saying counselors and psychologists are problematic because we have been. Um, yeah. But it, I think the kind of education you provide allows people to be more savvy consumers so that they can right. step out there and like, you know, really like say, hey, I'm going to take hold of my mental health and I'm going to, um, I'm going to find a person who works for me. Exactly. Exactly. Very, very true. So let me ask you. Um, I want I, one of the reasons that uh, I wanted to 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 bring you on, besides the fact that you're just you know amazing in general, um, is that you do hold expertise as um, a, um, a child clinical psychologist, um, and so. With all the things that have been happening, we, we talked a little bit again at the last episode of Naming It about um, some of the consequences that could come of these children being separated from their parents at this young age. Um, and APA yeah. put out its, you know, the, the, the research on it. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more um, as a person who, you know, as a clinician who actually works with kids. Um, yeah. Like what, what, what could we, what could be happening with these kids? Yeah, so there's a lot. First of all, from the information that I've been trying to keep us with, there's so much. Uh, a lot of these families are seeking asylum, first of all. Right. Um, they're not what we hear on the media. Everybody, everybody's a drug dealer and a rapist and all these sorts of things. That is not what the data shows, uh, fact. Um, so, you know, if you're seeking asylum and you're coming from a situation, whatever country you're coming from, it shouldn't matter, but you're coming from a situation where you... I mean, you know extreme violence and you know torture and you know extreme poverty and, you know, all of these things. First of all, that's traumatic in and of itself. And then you're trying to get into a better situation as a child. And then on top of all that stress already, you've added an additional stress of sometimes the only person that these kids can trust in their life, which is their parents, to just rip them away from that. Right. That is extremely traumatic. So these children are at risk for post-traumatic stress disorder, which a lot of people still think of only happens to veterans. It absolutely can happen with kids, as you know. Um, but, but the public doesn't necessarily always know. So post-traumatic stress disorder, I mean, we're talking about depression. We're talking about anxiety higher risk. We're talking about higher risk of not doing well in school. It literally, depending on the age, well, actually even the teens, because of that type of uh, extreme stress of being separated from a parent, it can change the way that their brain functions and it still affects them into their adult years. And that's what people don't understand. The longer that we wait, you know, people think, well, they're only separated for, you know, X amount of time. If you're separated from your parent, you don't know when you'll see them again for a year. Guess what? <laughs> you know that's gonna ha- that can have permanent damage and permanent effects into your adult years. You know this is not a separation where it's a day or two. You know these are months. I read some of the stories. I mean, the kids don't they can't talk to their parents in some cases. They don't know where the parents are. At. The parents don't know where the kids are at. I mean, and in addition to that, it also is stressful, obviously, for the parent. Right. So now, when hopefully, <laughs> when you're reunited, now you have a traumatized parent and a traumatized child, so that also changes the family dynamic. 
Right. So overall, we, I mean, well, it's so, it was really difficult, by the way, last week to do some of those interviews and to even be on YouTube. It was, it was very, very emotional for me because I'm like, we're basically tearing families apart and we, we, I say as a country, we are traumatizing these families, which is totally unnecessary. Right. So that's essentially what, what could be happening with these kids and families. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think, uh, you hit it right on the head and I think that it's, um, you know, when you, when you think about the situation as it's happening, if this was going on, if this was like some sort of thing that was happening to U.S. expats or something like that, or U.S. immigrants or folks just on vacation going someplace and, Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of kids being taken. I mean, this is stuff where our military would get involved, you know? I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more um, in detail about, you know, what does it look like for for a child to have PTSD? Like, what is that? How how do they present? Yeah. So, what's what's so what's so difficult with kids is that because there's a lack of information or a lack of understanding about children and mental health, let's say, for example, this child with PTSD is in a classroom setting when all of a sudden something happens that triggers this child and it, for us, the, you know, that would be something mild, right? It could be, I don't know, that someone dropping a, a book on the floor or something and they hear a loud sound or whatever it is that's so benign and this child starts to act out, immediately what what does happen, and it's happened before, is that this child now gets into trouble. When they are freaking out inside, they can't, they're not going to say, I have PTSD, right? If they're eight years old, let's say, they're going to freak out. They're going to have an intense reaction. They could hurt someone. They could yell at someone. They could run out of their seat. They could run out of their classroom, all these things. And what happens, well, so what I've heard um, sometimes in the school system is because we don't take the time to sit down and figure out what's going on with the child, it's immediately this child can be getting into trouble. Now this child is has a referral. Now they're suspended. All these sorts of things, which, of course, is going to exacerbate the situation, right, and make it worse um, because of post-traumatic stress disorder. So a lot of times children are, are triggered, right, because that loud sound could have reminded them of when they're in the detention center and a door slammed or every time they heard a certain, like the bell could trigger. I mean, there's all sorts of triggers in school, but we don't, I mean, you don't know unless you're really sitting down with a child and the child has counseling, you know, or the child has a chance to talk to a teacher that really, really cares. We don't know what's triggering that child, but that is what PTSD can do. And then the child has nightmares. You know, that's another symptom that sometimes happens, which of course is now disrupting their sleep. Um, A child could have intense memories that are starting to come back like flashbacks. And they can actually think that they're in the situation. That's what people don't understand. Like that, let's say, like I said, the book dropped on the floor and made a loud sound. All of a sudden, if they feel like they're back in that situation with the detention center or wherever it was, I mean, it's, it's very traumatic and it feels very real. Right. So we need to be aware that these kids are, are going through this. Right. So, I mean, like, if you think about it, um, you said earlier that, you know, they're they're going through this and it doesn't, like, people have this idea that, oh, they're being detained for a short amount of time and, you know, it's all part of the government, so it must be okay, it's, you know, whatever. Um, I wonder if people understand that for, for a child or for a person in general, like, it doesn't matter what the justification is, the experience is the experience. So these kids are literally being kidnapped from their perspective. It's like, if, if, if our listeners... 
could could think about it. Just what would it be like if when you were a kid to be yanked from your parents' arms and then get no information for mm-hmm. weeks, months, possibly years, because yeah. we don't know how long this is going to be. And, and what if you were a toddler, you know, because they have toddlers in there. Like, yeah. what is yeah, that? Yeah, like how, how we're not just talking about like a mild case of of anxiety or like some transitory kind of PTSD. We're talking about like real severe traumatic incidences, right? The same as if someone uh, busts into your home, you know? Right. I mean, that's essentially what it is. I mean, when someone, you know, in a uniform, like some random, especially like you said, the, the younger ones who have no idea. I mean, you're two, three years old. Or a baby, do you have someone that looks scary, picks you up, takes you somewhere, you don't know where you're going, you don't know when you'll see your parents again, you can't talk to your parents, I mean, that's, that's terrifying. Right. And like you said, that that does, it really does, I'm glad you brought that up as an analogy, because it really does mimic what kidnapping would be like. It's a strange person, they take you away, you don't know where you see when you'll see your parent again. It's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> So I was also wondering, so we've, we've talked about kind of the trauma of it. The other reports that they talked about um, that, that's been coming out of the news is this whole idea that the kids can't be picked up, the kids can't be soothed. Oh, my God. Um, and that, that, like, I mean, that is that by itself child abuse, right? That's neglect. That heartbreaking, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I read that. I mean, well, I have a five-year-old son now, and I, like, I, as a mom, I really had a hard time with that because I'm like, I cannot imagine that a child, let's say they're eight months old, they're going to be laying in the crib crying. You're not going to touch them. (laughs) Like you're not going to comfort them. Like that is insanity. I don't know who came up with that philosophy. And I I did read the same thing you were talking about, how it's like, okay, we're going to change their diaper and feed them. Well, if only humans could survive like that. Imagine a child, you change their diaper and you give them food and you give them no love, no hugs, no holding, nothing. That that goes against, I mean, first of all, <laughs> it's inhumane, but it goes against everything in research where we teach to comfort, to hold a child. We know about skin-to-skin contact and how important that is to develop bonding and trust. And it's just, it is so barbaric <laughs> to to think of that. Like, that, was, that tore me apart, I think, um, last week to read that. Just, I, I, I don't even understand the logic um, because it really makes no sense. The thing that pops up to me is like, this is one of those things that can cripple a person forever, basically. You know, like, um, we talk about what's not usually talked about and what a lot of people in the public don't know about um, are personality disorders. And uh, one of the hard parts about personality disorders, first of all, they're usually not diagnosed until someone's an adult, but they're fully about their childhood, you know? and. These personality disorders, they're, the prognosis isn't great, you know, like people can learn like through like really intensive therapy to to like build skills and to get better in certain ways or like to, to, to feel better and to be able to interact better in certain ways. But in, in a lot of ways, because of abuse and neglect and, and poor interactions as a child, these folks are just not able to, to fully engage in what it means to be kind of a stable, healthy adult. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that is, I mean, what what you mentioned earlier about, to me, that that's neglectful. I mean, because if you just feed it, I mean, it's like, here's your meal. And we'll, I mean, well, gosh, we'll change your diaper. Thanks. And, and there's no love. There's no comfort. I mean, that, that is, that's emotional neglect. When you don't, 
interact. I mean, okay, you're in the same room with them. I mean, you have to, you have to interact with someone that's a human being. You wouldn't even treat your dog that way, right? Like people wouldn't treat their animals that way. Why would you treat a child that way? Um, so absolutely, you're right. And and with personality disorders, we know. I mean, many of them have, depending on the condition, very intense, long-term therapy in a lot of cases. And and it is something absolutely that develops with abuse and neglect and. And especially, especially in the younger years when children are learning and trying to understand the issue of trust and who they can trust, Mm -hmm. which usually starts with a parent or caregiver. And just to have that ripped away and have some random stranger is a huge disruption in attachment. Right. So it's really hard. Yeah. So um, I know we're we're kind of running running close on time. I'm wondering if you do we have time for you to talk a little bit about um, kind of what it looks like to treat, not necessarily like the details of treatment, but like just if a if a family one of these families come out of this situation and they like you know with the blessings of of the ancestors are able to find their child and get their child and then get into some sort of stable situation. Like yeah. what would go what what kind of resources would go into like making these people whole again? Yeah. So I think it it really happens at multiple levels. Um, first, definitely for the child, no matter what age, if it's a little child or if it's a younger child or teen or whatever age, they need their own individual therapy because they have been traumatized. And to process that amount of trauma and what happens a lot with little, well, with all age kids, but especially with the little kids is they tend to distort the reality a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, not in a psychotic way, but just, I mean, kids make up things, right? Because that's how they cope and that's how they function. So when you're seven, they just make up all sorts of things that are not necessarily true. So you have to like undo that and to process that. So definitely individual therapy for the child. The family, I really believe the family needs some type of reunification therapy uh, because especially depending on the length of time that they've been apart, uh, people change, people have been traumatized now how to reintegrate this family back together and to heal the wounds that have happened as a family is really important. So that's the second piece. The third thing is that if, I mean, elementary, middle, high school, a lot of times there's probably something that the school needs to do at this point, um, that they need to put things in place. If this child now is so traumatized, they need extra breaks. If they need extra time on their test or their quizzes or if they need whatever they need to they need to take tests in separate rooms whatever it is that probably is going to be impacting them in the academic setting then the school needs to get involved as well and to make the appropriate changes for them so it really happens on like multiple levels um more like you know a wraparound system if you will to to make sure that this child and family frankly can work on on healing themselves and the parent too i mean Really, in an ideal world, the parents should be going to their own separate sessions as well. Well, I mean, it seems like that's a there's a whole lot of working, uh, moving pieces that would have to align to help these families out. And knowing the way our country works and what's happening currently, and the fact that like most of these things are only accessible to people who are well off. We're talking about a situation where even the repairable damage isn't likely to be repaired. Um, yeah. Which 
I think kind of pushes forward on the urgency that we need to start minimizing the damage as, as quickly as possible yeah. and get those kids back to their families and, um, exactly. you know, rebuff what this administration has been doing in terms of, you know, yeah. disregarding the basic principles of, of who who we would love to be and who we should be as a nation, right? Right. I, I completely agree with you. And you're absolutely right. I mean, and what I just described was like an ideal world you get all this help, you get all this treatment, and then you can, right, heal yourself. But like you mentioned, when you have the trauma, when you have, if you have lack of resources and the stigma and, you know, everything else that's going on, it makes those steps really difficult. Or you may get, like, one thing that you need instead of, like, the five. Mm. So, yeah. So, well, I I think we could definitely talk about this for a long time, and um, yeah. but um, I know you're a very busy person, and um, I, I want to make sure that we can uh, with, go without you having to run. So, I'm I'm wondering if uh, you wanna if you could share with uh, our audience, with the namers, a little bit more about where they can find you and like how they can find your book, and um, just let them know, you know, so they can get a little bit of that, uh, you know, America's. Uh, psychologists in their in their life. All right. Awesome. Um, well, I'm on, I think, pretty much about all social media platforms, trying to send out the information, the good stuff, and the accurate information. But um, the best way to contact me is through my website, which is drnakeshahammond.com. So it's D-R-N-E-K-E-S-H-I-A Hammond.com. Um, and then there's a link to the different social media platforms. And then if anyone has any interest um, in, you know, any of the books, then it's also on the website as well. The links are on there, too. So thank you so much for giving us some of your time. I know that, you know, it's uh, it's definitely at a premium and, uh, you know, figuring out when to when to tape and, and how to, to kind of get that together uh, isn't always easy. So I, I just really appreciate you uh, being flexible and working with us and, uh, and, and sharing and, and giving of your expertise. No problem whatsoever. Thank you. It's been an honor and a pleasure. And thank you also for what you're doing because I think... Your podcast is absolutely amazing and sharing, I mean, the same thing, like I said, sharing public information is, or public education is, is definitely well, well needed. So thank you also for what you do. Oh, thank you. Um, y'all heard that uh, America's psychologist said that, that our podcast is dope. So uh, we'll end on that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Um, keep naming it and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Peace. For more information, check out our website, NavyGetPodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Blog Talk Radio, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at NavyGetPodcast. Podcast.